Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. All right, well, good morning, and welcome to those of you who got the notification uh, that we are here this morning. I'm glad to see that, uh, that you made it. We're glad you're here. Uh, we are bummed that we couldn't be outside today, but it was just a little too wet and a little too cold. So we are here, but we are excited to be here in the house of the Lord this morning, and we are excited that you can join us. And I would still encourage you to stick around for our, what do we call it, a a pick luck? Um, Or a, you know, a potluck picnic. I don't know what it is anymore, but we're hopeful that you can still stick around. We'll have plenty of food. Join us. Uh, It's going to be a great time. But we are here in the house of the Lord this morning, and we are going to worship and enjoy time together. So before we do, let me open us a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this morning, and we, do, we thank you for the rain. As much as it uh, dampens what we had planned, God, we know how much we need it. And so, Lord, we thank you for the rain, and we thank you for the way that you provide for the earth and water the earth. And so we, we give you this morning, here in your house, Lord, as we worship you. God, would you be praised and glorified. I praise your name. Amen. So would you stand and we'll start in some worship this morning. Well, good morning. It is uh, good to be here with you all this morning. And I uh, forgot to introduce myself last time. Uh, if you're new, visiting, um, or maybe you just forgot. I'm Bruce Trugsma. I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. And I, I would like to, again, extend the invitation to have you stick around uh, for the potluck picnic after the service. Uh, get to know each other. And if we don't know each other, and maybe uh, reacquaint ourselves with each other after a, a, a busy summer so far. I don't know about you, but my summer has been, the last couple of weeks have felt crazy, uh, oddly busy. You know, we looked at our calendar a few weeks ago and felt like we had some white space in our life. And um, this week looked at each other, my wife and I, and kind of, who are you? And how do I know you? And why are you in this house with me? Is kind of where we're at. So I don't know if anybody else in that spot. If you are, um, I'm with you. If you are not, I'm a little jealous. So, um, but thank you for being here. And I just, I just, you know, have you ever had a, not, not, this is not a comment on what I just said. The last couple of weeks have been great. But have you ever had a bad day? Have you ever had one of those days that just fell apart? where, you know, you got up in the morning and everything seemed right, and by the time you went to bed, it's like the wheels came off, right? I think we've all had those days. We've had a day where, where, where we were in the morning and where we thought we would be at night were vastly different experiences. And um, I, I, know, I know a story of, that some of you might know, especially if you're a fan of tennis, or follow the Wimbledon, especially in the mid-90s. I was not a tennis fan, especially not in the mid-90s. I've come to know it a little bit more as my wife played tennis in high school and a little bit in college. Come to understand the sport a little bit more. But in the mid-90s, women's tournament, uh, there was the unlikely matchup in 1993 between Jana Novotna and Steffi Graf. And Jana wasn't even supposed to make it to the final, uh, wasn't supposed to make it to the quarterfinals, and she finds herself in the final against Steffi Graf. Steffi Graf, the heavy favorite. And, and if, you, if you, like me, didn't grow up watching tennis or Wimbledon specifically, uh, for those of you that maybe follow a different sport, uh, tennis, you know, you have games, you have sets, and you have matches. And so you have to win a game, and then you have to win 
a certain number of games to take the set, and you have to win a certain number of sets to take the match. And so it can be this long, protracted thing. Like when I play tennis with my wife, it's a pretty short thing, not only because she is significantly better than me, uh, but because we play until one of us wins the first game, and we're like, oh, game over. And that's not the way it is at these tournaments. They're long. Uh, they can take quite a while. And you have to win by at least two points. And then you must win six games before your opponent to win the set. And then you must win two out of the three sets to win the match at Wimbledon. So it, it can be this long thing. And so she's not even supposed to be there. But, but Jana makes it. She makes it to the final. And everything is going her way. She plays the first match uh, and, and forces an overtime and just barely loses the first match. And so here she is, not supposed to be there, and she's hung with the legendary Steffi Graf. And then shockingly takes the second one, like six to one, blows her out of the water. Everything is now going Jana's way. And then Jana jumps out to an early lead, again, needing six games, and she's up four games to one in the final match. She wins this match. She wins Wimbledon. And she's sitting there up four to one in the second match, and it's her serve, and she serves the first time directly into the net. It's pretty common in tennis. You get a second. Generally, the tennis player on their second serve will be a little more conservative. They'll, they'll play it nice and safe. Uh, Jana winds up, serves, doesn't even hit the court. She's wide and deep by several feet point to Steffi. And Steffi takes over, and Jana continues to make mistake after mistake after mistake, and the wheels come off, and every mistake seems to make her focus more on the last mistake and make another mistake, and it falls apart, and she ends up losing Wimbledon to Steffi. And losing Wimbledon, she comes in second place, right? That's not really a bad thing, but she comes in second place, and it's one of the most famous photos on the screen in tennis Wimbledon history of her crying and falling apart when it finally hits her what happened as she's receiving the second place trophy. She's, she falls apart. And, and you know, concluding the story, fast forward, uh, the duchess who hands out the trophies tells her, you'll be back we believe in you, you'll be back. She comes back a couple years later, gets second place again, comes back a couple years later and finally wins Wimbledon herself. But in this moment, that's a bad day. And, and, and Wimbledon, we might look at it and say, you know, uh, the things we face in our life are, are, you know, I face things that are much worse than losing at Wimbledon. Much worse than getting second place, especially at Wimbledon. But you can see by her face that it was, it was a rough experience. Um, it's not something that was pleasant. It was, she has devoted her life to this and finally made it, and she didn't think she'd ever get another shot. As far as she knew, this was it. This was her one chance. She blew it. And that can be a demoralizing experience. And so the question is, if you're in that kind of situation, or maybe in something even worse, how do you maintain joy in those, in those moments? How do you maintain joy in the face of adversity, in the face of life falling apart, in the face of disappointment and anger? And how do you maintain joy? And, and really, is joy possible? Because I think a lot of people in today's day and age and in our culture would equate happiness and joy. That my goal is to be happy as often as I can, because that's joy. 
And if I'm happy, then life is good. And if I'm not happy, then life isn't good. And so we pursue this happiness thinking that that's joy. But scripture would tell us that joy and happiness are not the same thing. That you can be joyful in the face of adversity, in the face of disappointment, in the face of pain, in the face of loss, you can maintain your joy. And that is also not some sort of Pollyannaism that you just pretend everything is great when it isn't. You know, um, when, when, when I got in one of my many car accidents, you know, if I had just walked up, life is great. Like that, that's not joy either, pretending that, that things aren't bad. So what is joy and how do we maintain joy? How do we keep joy filled when life falls apart? And we're going to be looking at Psalm 5 this morning and I would encourage you to turn there in your Bible and follow along as we look at, at that. And I think it gives us a recipe for true joy. That, that Psalm 5 is going to give us a recipe for true joy because, because when you, if you were to read Psalm 5, you wouldn't walk away going, ah, now I feel better. Now I'm happy. You might read Psalm 5 and even not come away with the idea that joy is something attainable, but I think it gives us a recipe. And as with any good recipe, consistency is important. Now, I'm not a great chef. Or baker. And in fact, uh, when I met my wife, my idea of meal planning was I went to Domino's and bought five pizzas and stuck them in the fridge, and that was my meal planning for the week. So I'm not standing up here as an, that is inconsistently ground or is full of that is inconsistently ground or is full of other stuff. My recipe might not turn out. And so again, I'm not talking about the creativity in baking that some of you out there are comfortable doing, adding things to a recipe that it doesn't call for. That's not what I mean by consistency. I do mean though that those core ingredients and how we go about it, if I make a recipe one way today and make it an entirely different way the next day, I can't assume that it will turn out the same. Because consistency in a recipe is important. And as we talk about a recipe for joy, one of the things we need to remember is that consistency is important. Oftentimes, I know people, when they get into those hard spots and those times when they struggle, that's when they turn to God. I remember as a kid, growing up, my parents subscribed to the Reader's Digest. Anybody grow up with their parents, or maybe you having the Reader's Digest? And I always loved the jokes, and then I always loved the story that they had, the drama in real life. Anybody remember reading the drama in real life stories? Okay, a couple of you, thank you. And, and, and I loved that all these stories, and they were great stories. And how many of them had a testimony of how God moved? So many of them, I was in this dire spot and I prayed and God moved. But for how many of us in the drama, like drama in real life, is that the only time we call out to God? That's the only time we consistently call out to God is when our life falls apart. How many people in our world only consistently call out to God when drama in real life happens? And so consistency is important, and so I would challenge us before we get into the psalm, you're going to hear from our psalmist this talk about going to God in the morning. That consistency in our spiritual walk determines our ability to have a godly joy. If we are not consistently with God, we can't expect to respond consistently to the trauma that happens in our life. We need that consistency. But like consistency, the other thing that is important is the correct ingredients. Again, back to my cooking and baking. Uh, if I, I need flour, I need quality flour. And if I need 
consistent measuring cups. I also need the right ingredients. I can't substitute salt for sugar because they, they look basically the same. If you're interested in some cookies where I do that, I will make cookies and I will substitute the salt for the sugar and we'll see how it goes. You need the right ingredients. And so consistently spending time with God is one thing, but then also consistently spend time with God. Oftentimes I'll hear people and they go, oh, I spent my quiet time and I'm reading a book and I'm reading a journal or something like that. And, and I remember and many of you were here on, on my um, installation Sunday when Dave Lindy from the district stood up here and challenged me to go to the gospel first, not books about the gospel. And I turned that same challenge around to you. Go to scripture first. Don't read books about scripture, read scripture. Start there. Bring that creativity into your quiet time, sure, but start with scripture. That's, that's a thing I have been motivated to do as we've gone through these Psalms is starting with reading through the psalm first before going to some commentary or journal article or somebody else's opinion about it. What does the psalm say? Starting there. Finding those consistent, if you want this recipe to work, be consistent and do the right ingredients. And that's my, my challenge before we dig into this recipe for joy. And so let's look at our psalm this morning and see our first step in our recipe for joy, and it is focus. Our first ingredient is focus. And, and I don't mean focus in the sense of, we've kind of talked a little bit about, about you know, Jana's focus in a tournament or focusing on the recipe. I mean, I mean, where is your focus? When you get up in the morning, what is the first thing that enters your mind? And I'll be honest, mine is coffee. It just is. I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But what's the first thing that enters your mind in the morning when you get up? Is your first thing the, the worries and the cares of the day? Is your first focus area that test you have coming or that project at work or, or that issue with your child or with your neighbor or with your family member? Where is your focus right away in the morning? If you want to have joy, where does your focus start? Look at where, look at where David, who wrote Psalm 5, look at where he starts. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. Our psalmist reminds us that our first focus should be on God. His first focus is on God, and he maintains a godly focus. The, the psalmist is facing some issues on this day. We don't know what they are. David, again, doesn't tell us exactly what he's facing, but he is lamenting. And his, in, his natural inclination is turn to his God. And he gives some clarity on, on that for us too. We should turn to our God. Where is our focus? Our focus should be on God. Where do we turn? When life falls apart, when, when we serve into the net and follow up by entirely missing the court, where does our focus turn? Do we miss the forest for the trees? I know that in my life, when something goes wrong, I can get so focused on what is directly in front of me that it can cause me to miss the more important one. This is a common conversation we'll have, and I'm using a lot of sporting analogies today, bear with me. But this is a common conversation we have in mountain biking. Uh, you can't look at your front tire and mountain bike successfully. If you focus on your front tire, you will do what I did when I was focusing on my front tire. You will go over the edge of the trail and tumble down the hill. 
You cannot focus here. You have to be looking up there. But the temptation is to look right here. And when the, when the crisis in your life comes along, where do, you, where do your eyes go? Well, immediately our eyes go to the crisis. And our psalmist is reminding us to turn to the Lord. And notice that he simply starts by asking God to listen. God, listen to my cry. Hear my lament. And that lament word uh, is, is a little unclear in the English because in the original language, it could also mean like an internal sigh or a meditation, which I find very encouraging because there are often times where I don't know what to do and where somebody would come to me and say, how can I help? And I want to look at them and go, I can't even put into words what I need right now. And I'm so grateful that God can hear that. That even in those moments, our lament, our, our sadness, that internal sigh. And later on in verse 3, when the author speaks of a prayer, he, he is including both the audible and the inaudible. And we are reminded in Scripture that God hears what we cannot put into words. Romans eight twenty six. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And so the significance for us is that we don't have to have it all figured out. I can be in that moment and I can lift my eyes up from the, the crisis in front of me, even if I don't understand, even if I can't explain it, even if I can't put it into words, and trust that God is not limited in the same way that we are, that God can hear the internal groanings of our hearts. And one way we can then begin to have joy is taking our focus off of that pain and turmoil and looking up and going, God, I know you understand in ways that even I do not. You can see and understand far beyond me and you understand where my heart really is. And even if I can't put into words the turmoil that I am facing, God, you understand. And so I lift my eyes up and change my focus. So where is your focus? Are you letting your cares and distractions in this world pull your focus away from your God and into the problem right in front of you? Because as David ends, he also says he will wait. And with our focus on God, it is easier to step back and wait and say, God, I don't know how you're going to resolve this or when. But with my focus on you, it is a lot easier to sit here and wait for that resolution to come. Because my focus is no longer on the problem, it's on you. And I trust that you hear and understand in ways that I cannot. And I wait. And I wait. And so our, our second ingredient after focus is repentance. And this is a common theme in Psalms, and hopefully it's a common theme and that you've heard in my preaching, not only in Psalms, but all throughout. We see it in Scripture, this idea of repentance is a big deal. We are called to repent regularly. We are called to repentance. It is part of our Christian walk. We must be consistently aware of our sinful nature that is seeking constantly to derail our personal walk with the Lord. And so we need to be mindful of that. And so the psalmist, after saying, God, here's my lament, here's my struggle, and, and again, we don't know what it is, but, but God does, and David goes, God, I'm going to wait for you. And then he turns, and I struggled with this part. To be really clear, I struggled with this part. This was a tough passage for me. Starting in verse four. 
For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. And, and I, I struggled with this passage because on the first few read-throughs especially, I did what is so tempting for all of us to do. That's them. That's the other. That's not me. God, you detest the evil. You detest the angry. You detest the wicked. But that's not me, so I'm in the clear. And they're the fault. They're at fault. They're the reason all these problems happen. God, it's their fault. And I, and I just kept wrestling because in my heart and in my spirit, I, I didn't feel like that's where God was taking us, to blame others. And so we don't want to put ourselves in their shoes. We don't want to be the ones who are wicked and evil. In the same way that when we read through the New Testament and we see the disciples, we like to see ourselves as the disciples. We like to see ourselves as the disciples who misunderstood what Jesus was saying. Almost like, like you know, we give them a pass every time they say something. And, and they say something and we kind of laugh at how ridiculous it is because they comment on how Jesus isn't going to die and how Jesus is going to take on the throne the right way. And, and we kind of chuckle with them like, oh, you disciples, you'll figure it out eventually. Ha ha ha. And then we get to the Pharisees and we see how Jesus responds to the Pharisees. And we're not the Pharisees. We're the disciples. We sometimes make mistakes, but, you know, we're, we're the bumbling fools following Jesus. We're not the evil, wicked Pharisees. And, and I think we forget that in the disciples, there's a Judas, and in the Pharisees, there's a Paul. And it's not as cut and dried as we might like it to be. And when we read the Old Testament, we're always the people of Israel. We're never Jericho shutting the doors in the face of God. But I think what this passage should challenge us to do is associate ourselves with the evil people who are not welcome, the arrogant who cannot stand in God's presence. Because you look at the, the second part of the passage, I don't think any of us are innocent. I think we've all been arrogant. I think we've all had those times where we have been arrogant. You hate all who do wrong. I have done wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. I can guarantee you that we have liars in this room. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. And, and that's an interesting phrase. The bloodthirsty and deceitful are kind of tied together. And it's, again, easy to sit back and say, yeah, I hope in this room we could all say, I've never killed anyone. I'm not bloodthirsty. I've never murdered but as one theologian put it about the story of Scripture and about this passage, most times, theologically, the problem is not outside God's people. Theologically, the problem is always internal. Our focus needs to start with ourselves and how we have done these things. And so we look at this list of sins that God hates, and we should see ourselves. And we can look on this passage and see that the bloodthirsty, or in some translations, murderers, are also that, not that far from us. We all know that Jesus will say in Matthew 5, I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, 
Raka is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And why does Jesus seem to equate bloodthirsty and dishonesty, and why does the psalmist seem to equate bloodthirsty and dishonesty as the same thing? And I think because the reality is, whenever we try and define terms our way, we lose all sense of bearing. And actually, the distance between deceit and the pain and hurt that that can bring somebody, and anger and murder, is not as far away in reality as it is in our legal system. The sin of deception and anger can cause the same amount of pain and hurt ramifications spiritually that murder can. And we like to draw this nice distinct line and say, no, that's over there and I'm over here. And yet Jesus tells us they're a lot closer than we think they are. And if you have hated somebody, you are guilty of murder. And I I bring all of this up just because I don't think we can distance ourselves from this passage as much as we might want to. That we need to look internally and say, as much as God hates sin, I am a sinner. And therefore, there's only one way that I can resolve that, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ who pays that penalty, no matter what the sin is. That's why David, who commits murder, is still welcome in God's home, and Saul wasn't. Because it's about that repentance. It's about that turning to God and saying, I can't resolve this on my own, and so I'm going to trust that your sacrifice will. So we repent. We repent of our sins, and in humility we remind ourselves that if we are willing to define sin in our own way in one area, it's just as easy to redefine it in another area. And so we repent knowing that if it was not for God, we would all stand condemned, every one of us. And we are all guilty of sin that brings death, and not one of us stands innocent. And so we repent. And we need to continually repent and remind ourselves of where we stand in humility. And that repentance should naturally lead us to a remembrance of the cross and what God has done, and as believers then, that should lead us naturally to our next ingredient, which is worship. Our next ingredient is worship. We turn to God in worship, in thankfulness for what he has done for us. And our response should always be worship, and not just worship in singing, but worship in word and deed, that everything I do can be an act of worship, that, that washing the dishes can be an act of worship, that that um, caring for a friend or a neighbor can be an act of worship, that going to work can be an act of worship. If it's done in that spirit of, God, you have blessed me so much, I'm going to turn around and bless those around me. God, I'm going to worship you for who you are. I'm going to take notice of how you're at, at work. All of that can be worship. And our natural response when we realize that you know, we focus on God and then we realize our sin and we repent, our natural response should be worship, to thank God for what he has done to be grateful for what he has done. And that's where David lands, verse seven. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down toward your holy temple. And so here again, we see the psalmist's posture of humility. After seeing a holy God's perspective on sin, he is reminded that it is only by the great love of God that he can come into the house of the Lord. We cannot enter on our own. 
And, not, and notice, not only is David's posture one of humility in response to God's love, but that is the criteria for entrance into God's presence. How many of us in, in, in times of turmoil and struggle where we haven't dealt with the sin in our own life, even if it isn't related to the struggle we're facing, but we sit there and we're reaching out to God and we're praying and we're trying to figure out why life doesn't make sense or why it isn't working. And it feels like when we pray, it bounces off the ceiling and isn't going anywhere. And instead, the psalmist in humility goes, God, you know, I don't know what this may have done to cause that, but I acknowledge that either way, I am guilty of sin and I'm gonna come in humility. And I'm gonna stand here and say, God, where are you at work and where are you moving? Because you have covered my sin and now I'm trusting you to cover again. And I am, I am not able to do this on my own. And all of that is a posture of humility, not based on David's merit, but on the work of God. And a few months ago, when we were looking at Hebrews, our study of Hebrews, we read this same idea. In Hebrews 4, 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we can now come in with confidence because our sin is covered by God's grace. And we can come in in confidence, but don't let confidence become um, the ability to, deal, to, to treat it nonchalantly as, as, as insignificant. Approaching God's throne is a big deal. And we are covered by grace and we can approach it with confidence, but don't let it become rote. So we worship with confidence, but we do not take it for granted. Because the temptation with our open access to God is to take it for granted, to treat it as something that, well, if there's all this abundant grace, then what does it matter what I do? And God is, is some magic ATM of, of forgiveness in the sky that I can keep on doing what I want and just go get a little more grace anytime I need it. And that's not the call. We're called to come in humility. We're called to come and enter the throne room of God knowing that it's by that grace alone. So we worship. We respond in worship. And we worship in confidence but I would challenge you to take time regularly to worship in the same way that consistency is important in reading the scriptures, consistency in worship is important. Make that a part of your spiritual development. Engage in worship. And that's a challenge for me because I'm not very musically inclined. I'm not very musically talented. Um, I'm just not, I never really have been. And so for me, worship really can become a musical thing. And I'm not a person who uh, turns on worship music when I'm around the house. I'm not a person who, you know, generally gets deeply moved by worship songs. There are times it happens. I'm grateful for those. That's, that's not it for me. And so it'd be tempting for me to just not make worship a regular part of my spiritual time with God. But it needs to be. I need to respond in prayer and in worship, and I need to put the intentionality into it. I mean, in the same way that if I'm not very good at baking, which I've admitted I'm not, if I never try, I'm never gonna get any better. I need to be intentional with it. I need to put the effort in. And so take that time, be intentional in your worship. Again, not just in music, but musically as well. There's a reason that our Bible is full of Psalms. Music is a part of who we are and we need to engage in it. So be intentional but also find what works for you. If I'm sitting at home and I put on worship music and I get out my phone or I get out my laptop or I get out that novel I'm reading, 
It's not very productive. For me, it's a lot more productive to be out in God's creation and to see how God is at work in his world and to worship. So figure that out. Where does that work for you? But be intentional. Make time. Respond in worship. Which leads to our last ingredient this morning. Walk it out. Walk it out. Whenever you're making a recipe uh, and, and baking specifically, what's the last step? Put it in the oven. Bake it. See what happens. That's the last step. And then you take it out, and, and after it bakes for a while, then you discover if you did things right. I have a cousin who works for, um, I don't remember the name of the company, but it's a big flour company. It's not Cargill, but he used to work for Cargill, but he's worked in flour his entire life. And in, in that world, he has come to know the difference between double O flour and all the other kinds. I can't remember their names. And he is passionate about flour and baking. And he uses this kind of flour to bake bread and that kind of flour to make pizza dough and this kind for cookies. And how did he get there? By testing them. He's devoted his entire life to flour, his professional life, to flour and to baking. And he knows by putting it in the oven, when he takes it out, he can tell you what went wrong. Ah, you used too much, you used too little, it was too old, it was too dry, it was too, whatever. Bake it, walk it out. See what happens. Take the time, once you've, you've made focus and, and worship and repentance a regular part of your life, give it some time to see the fruit. Spiritual, a spiritual walk is not a microwave where we stick it in and ding, it's done. Ha, I repented, all is good, I'm done. Walk it out. Listen to his tone in verses eight through 12. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. And so here we see this, this attitude of, I can't trust them. I can't listen to them. I can't follow them, God. But look at his shift. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. And so our psalmist desires a lifetime of walking in step with the Lord. This is not something that's going to happen instantaneously. He's waiting on God's timing, and he's looking and saying, God, they're not following you. God, they're trying to draw people away from you, but I want to follow you. I want to constantly be in your presence, God. I want to sing for joy. I trust that you will spread your protection over me and that those who love you, your name, may rejoice in you. I want that kind of life. It takes time. There may be times like David that we have to start over, where we have to readjust our focus, repent again, move back into worship to get back on track. Walk it out. Trust that God is going to move and sit and wait and walk it out. Give God time to move and trust that he is. And when it doesn't move the way you want, continue to walk in trust. And it's easy to start listening when it doesn't go the way we want to those other voices that will want to draw us away. Say, no, I'm going to continue to walk this out. I'm going to continue to stay consistent in this. I'm going to continue to pursue God. Because our psalmist is focused on our relationship with God. 
rather than the outcomes. The desire is that we have that right relationship with God and we maintain it for our entire life. And if we measure it constantly based on whether we are happy in the moment, we're gonna be disappointed a lot. But if we walk it out and trust that if we live in this recipe, God will take care of the rest and that we might just be in the oven right now and it might not look the way we want, but we are gonna wait. We are gonna give it time and trust that God is gonna move. There are so many times in my life where if you'd have come to me and said, just walk it out, I would have looked at you and said, you're crazy. That doesn't make any sense. I'm in pain, I'm in hurt right now. But there are also numerous times where a couple of years later, looking back, I can see where God moved and I just needed to wait. And so we walk it out. It's based on our relationship with Christ. And this psalm, Paul will use this psalm and this passage in Romans 3 to remind us that we are all sinners in that same boat. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. Once again, remembering that sometimes we're that voice over there. And sometimes we're the one calling somebody away and instead to let them walk it out with God, to journey with them, to trust that God is at work, to remind ourselves that we are all sinners in need of salvation. And so we repent and then we walk with God. And what is the point? What is this psalmist's point? What is David's point? What is Paul's point in Romans 3? What truly separates the evildoer and the follower of God is not their amount of sin. What truly separates them is their ability to continually seek the refuge of the Lord's repentance. And as one commentator ends their summary of this passage, I will end with that this morning. Indeed, as Paul told the church in Rome, In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any other power, neither height or depth or anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if that is true, that is how we truly find joy. It's not in the in the moment. It's not in the happiness. It's in knowing that no matter what happens in this earth, if I am in right step with God, nothing on this earth can separate me from his love. And if I cannot be separated from God's love, then I can face anything in front of me with joy. So would you pray with me this morning? Father God, I thank you that you are a God of love that you are a God of joy who promises us that no matter what we face, God, we can find our joy in you. And Lord, as some in this room are facing some really big things right now, God, we pray that joy would go with them. God, I pray that joy would go with me. I pray that joy would go with all of us, even when, God, it is so, so hard. So give us that ability to worship in the face of sadness. Give us that ability to repent in the, say, in the face of anger. God, give us the reminder that our focus needs to stay on you no matter what. And not to get sidetracked into what is facing us today. We praise you in your name. Amen. That was wonderful. And thank you, Pastor, for that uh, reminder of uh, what joy is and that we get to come to Uh, our Father, 
and just uh, consistently meet with him uh, and, and have all those ingredients. And so we're just grateful for that. We're grateful for all of you being here. And uh, just a couple announcements here before we depart. Um, if uh, you want to uh, give then uh, there's an offering box in the back. You can give online or through your mobile device. Uh, this last week we had the five-day clubs and a wonderful ministry, and we had some kiddos that came to uh, know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So uh, it's that your generosity that allows us to uh, minister to our community through things like five-day clubs, through the youth program. So if you'd like to give, please do. Um, coming up, September 22nd through the 24th, the Anchored Women's Group is going to do uh, a trip to Camp Shamanaw, and it's called Rejuvenate. And so in that weekend, you'll get together and you'll get to grow in your relationship with the Lord and with each other. So if you're interested in that, um, keep an eye out for uh, more information. And then also, uh, coming up September 10th, uh, it's the beginning of our fall ministry season. Um, and we are going to have a picnic following the worship service. Didn't happen today necessarily outside, but we are going to have things like bouncy house and a tent, etc., and some volleyball, according to Luke. So uh, if you could uh, uh, invite your friends, your family, uh, neighbors, people in the community, we want our church to be a place that is recognized as a place to come and connect and for people to grow in their faith. And so uh, remember that. That's September 10th. Please join us for that picnic. Thank you. And uh, as we end this morning, just a reminder, uh, I think I've said it like six times, so hopefully this isn't needed again, but please stick around. Um, it might take them a little bit to finish uh, making the hot dogs and everything, so linger, get to know each other, uh, spend some time, and then uh, join us for that meal. But I am going to pray for that meal now as we end, and I'm going to end with this. I'm going to end with this from Philippians chapter 4. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So to God, our, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. God, we thank you again for your riches, God, that we have in abundance. So Lord, we thank you for this morning, this opportunity we had to gather. Lord, we pray for our time together as a community, Lord, that you would bless this time, bless this food to our bodies. We thank you for the hands that have prepared it. And Lord, may you be glorified in all that we say and all that we do as we depart from here. In your name, amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.